This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. talk with uh, Josh Wright. He's back with us, chief economist at iSIMS uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, of course, talking about uh, today's labor report, monthly labor report. Nice to have you back with us. Always a pleasure to be here with you. Always good. Especially uh, in this great new studio. It's pretty cool, right? <laughs> I definitely feel like I'm part of the matrix. <laughs> you are. You, you are. are. You are. There's a blue pill right there. <laughs> Jobless rate at a 48-year low, uh, some hiring easing, but that we really are saying it's because of Hurricane Florence. This monthly jobs report, um, what does it say to you? Well, it confirms that the rates are headed straight up, you know, and, and there's no change in sight. It's really we all eyes pointed towards mid-2019, I think, because that's where the fiscal stimulus starts to fade, and that's where the Fed starts to get in the range of what we think is going to be something like neutral or slightly restrictive, which is the best guidance we have right now because they're throwing out that guidance, and they're saying just – Sit tight. We mean it that we are going forward with the rate hikes. When you say the fiscal stimulus is going to fade in 2019, are you talking about the tax? What are you talking about specifically? The stimulus that comes from the additional government spending as well as from the tax hikes, uh, tax cuts rather. Uh, both of those will be fading in the second half of 2019. So mid-2019 is where you really start to see what – it's kind of like what they say about when the tide goes out, you see who's wearing what yeah, underneath yeah, yeah. the water. <laughs> That's where we're really going to see what's going on out there. So you see the, a, a report like this, put yourself in the position uh, of the Fed. Are they saying, all right, good, we're doing a good job. They're sort of patting each other on the back, saying we're reading this right, we made the right signals. Because a lot of what we, and I ask that because a lot of what we've been talking about is this sort of new Fed, this Powell Fed, mm-hmm. the way he is communicating and the rest of the Fed is communicating. They feel pretty good about where they are, you think? I think the person who's sitting back and congratulating herself is probably Janet Yellen. Yeah, she got out nice. while the getting was good. Um, she set up the framework that worked really well, and now Mr. Powell has come in. He's throwing that framework out. I think that he's in the hot seat because interesting they, they are on the edge. They right. don't know which way it's going to tilt right now. They've, They're the ones who have to be careful. They don't overshoot, right? Yes. That could essentially turn the, push the economy into a recession. And they've abandoned the guidance, Yeah. right? So we're no longer on autopilot. Now, what, what I take this as is the Fed wants to listen to the market. That's ah. part of why you get rid of our star and all this talk about where is the neutral rate because that was really a method why to Why are we all of a sudden stop talking so much about our star Our star has been like a drinking game this week. Exactly. I mean, it's been crazy how much we've heard it. Well, because once you start to lift off of zero, and we've definitively moved away from zero at this point, then you, you're looking for some kind of bearings. Okay. Right? That was the whole speech from Jackson Hole was all about, well, how do we get oriented? And there are all these navigational metaphors. And his point is, you know, this really is not much more than just looking at the horizon. And so what does that tell you about him as a leader of the Fed? Because we've also been talking a lot about he's pretty plain spoken. He's out there a lot. And is he out there a lot because he wants to listen to the market and he wants to have more of a back and forth? What, what's your sense? My read is that he's a very interactive, relational kind of person. He likes to communicate. He's comfortable talking. He's comfortable being out in front of lots of different audiences, and he's willing to listen to them. And that speaks to his background. You know, this is someone who's worked in government. Um, he's mixed it up with a lot of pretty academic people, but also in his work for many
many years in private equity, he was working with all kinds of different businesses and business leaders. That's a lot of listening as well as a lot of talking. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, because your reference is kind of neat. I mean, you've got a, a pretty cool background. You're a former Fed uh, researcher. You did work at Bloomberg, full disclosure, on our economics team. But the company that you're with right now has to deals with talent acquisition. And I'm just curious um, what you're seeing either in terms of talking with clients and so on and so forth, what it tells you even more deeply about what's going on in the labor market. Well, there's a real arms race going on out there for employers looking for talent you know, and seeing the way there's not only changes in uh, innovation, the technology that they're using to wage that war, but also the influx of money. Um, there's venture capital that's coming in to build new companies and support these new technologies. But also we've got a lot of very large established tech firms, Amazon, well, definitely Microsoft um, purchased LinkedIn a couple of years ago. Amazon, there's some talk that they may get involved. Uh, Google made, made a big move last year to get involved in the world of technology servicing the labor market, specifically through HR functions within corporations. So that speaks to just how hard it is. Everyone is going up and they're gearing themselves up to try and go and find um, Work. potential workers and also to, um, Play to convince the them to come in. Yeah. And oh. so what do you make? You mentioned Amazon. What, what did you make of them raising the minimum wage and then the way that they chose to pay for it? Obviously, seemed to be less popular. It's um, definitely it, a sign of the times. Yeah, um, so put it in context. That's where we're headed. We're headed towards higher wages, and we're definitely headed towards higher minimum wages as well. But I definitely thought that this was more symbolism than substance. Um, sure enough, you know, they said, oh, actually, we're going to change some other aspects of the <laughs> right. compensation plan. But also then you go ahead and you take a look at what's the composition of their workforce. Primarily, it's not retail salespersons, it's warehouse workers. Now, you look at $15, that's a raise for most retail sales workers out there. But for warehouse workers, most of them are already making more than $15. Ah. So it was wonderful PR. It was a great way to, you know, give something like a shot across the bow to the other major competitors in the retail space like Target and Walmart, really scooping them. They've made a series of announcements this year about raising their minimum wages, but they were, they were for lower levels and also for longer periods of time. And Amazon comes and says, we're going to do this right away. Instant great headlines. Who's paying attention the next day? Interesting. Are we running out of workers to hire? That's what we don't know. It doesn't look like it um, because we've got, you know. We keep in, in, doing this month after month. We, st we keep doing this. We've got um, prime age, you know, young people, ages 25 to 54, so we call prime age workers. Um, they have still depressed levels of participation. So it stands to reason we can bring more of them in. But the big question is, how many more of them? Because we know that cyclically, we're very strong. You know, the economy is running hot. But structurally, over long term, that's been declining. And so, we, again, that brings us back to that question of bearings. And we don't have those bearings right now. Josh Wright, chief economist, iSIMS, former colleague of ours here at Bloomberg, yes. here with us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks, as always, for your insight. So just catching up, Carol, on what the market uh, is doing. The Dow uh, down more than 215 points, 8 tenths of 1%. S&P down 6 tenths of 1%. NASDAQ down more than 1%, 1.2% reacting to this jobs report, uh, we think. And when we get a jobs report, it's always good to look at the uh, Treasury trade, 3.2% on that 10-year note, five-year note with the yield of 307, and at the shorter end of the yield curve, that two-year note with the yield of 289. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week, and this is Bloomberg Radio. You talk too much. You talk too much. So, Carol, there's a of that song. It might be you tweet too much. And yeah. this falls into what we really could do daily, a segment called, Oh, Elon. <laughs> really? Joining us to talk about the latest with Elon Musk and Tesla and Elon's Twitter account is Ben Bain, financial re regulations reporter, joining us on the phone from our Washington, D.C. bureau. Uh, so, Ben, as you heard Charlie Pellet say, 
Tesla share is falling and largely attributable, it seems, to Elon tweeting and and doubling down today, I should add, about uh, short selling and specifically calling out the SEC. Bring us up to date. Yeah, so um, not not really too much else to point to that would be driving down the shares uh, besides uh, uh, his Twitter feed uh, over the past um, Twitter handle over the past uh, 12, 24 hours at this point. Um, going back to yesterday afternoon, um, Musk took to Twitter and started calling the SEC the Short Seller Enrichment Commission, um, which is seems to be uh, appears to be a reference to um, you know basically his uh, long-standing fight with uh, short sellers who you know he considers to be betting against uh, his company and really and really him um, you know just kind of some context here this is only five days after um, Musk and uh, Tesla um, reached a settlement agreement uh, with the agency um, all kind of related to his uh, August 7th tweet when uh, when Musk came out and said he had funding secured uh, to take the company private. Uh, so basically, it's been another kind of uh, bumpy ride today right. for Tesla, and we're, we're back where we were a few weeks ago. Well, what's crazy, and let's just take a quick check, uh, Tesla shares down about 6.5%. What's interesting is the SEC in the fine print of uh, its um, deal with Elon Musk to kind of resolve everything. Mm-hmm. They did say what they need, what Tesla needs, is an experienced lawyer um, hired or designated to vet tweets must have qualifications that are not unacceptable to the staff. But anyway, they're just saying they need somebody to kind of keep an eye on this. Yeah, sure. And I mean, uh, this is, I, I'm not, not, I wouldn't pretend to be in the mind of uh, the people drawing up this settlement, but you can only imagine that probably this was kind of a situation that they might have been thinking about uh, when they put that language in there. Worth noting, the language about having someone review his tweets uh, only takes effect uh, 90 days after the settlement is, uh, you know, is completed. Um, it still hasn't been, uh, you know, finalized in, uh, in court. So a judge, you know, still has to kind of sign off. And it's usually a formality. But um, what, you know, some people are kind of talking about today, is when you have one of these settlements, it's basically an agreement not to admit or deny uh, any wrongdoing. And, you know, calling out the SEC on just, you know, basically making fun of the SEC, essentially, kind of not the the normal look for a CEO who just settles with the SEC. And some people speculate that the agency could, uh, you know, take what he did to be some type of violation of the terms of, of that agreement, because right. he did agree, you know, to not, uh, you know, admit or, or deny that he did something wrong. Well, and notably, one of the other most read stories of the day, also about Tesla, David Einhorn, who has been a longtime critic of Tesla, coming out publicly and saying the woes of Tesla and Elon Musk closely resembled those of none other than Lehman Brothers, which David Einhorn notably uh, was short uh, back there in 2007, 2008, uh, and saying, and I'm quoting here, uh, drawing to the parallels, quote, threatened short sellers refused to raise capital, even bought back stock, and management publicly suggested it would go private. So that's not where you want to be either, Ben, when you have a notable short seller whose feather in his cap is calling Lehman correctly, uh, drawing parallels. I mean, if nothing else, I think this, you know, this whole incident over the past 24 hours shows us this, this whole, like, you know, thought that somehow, uh, you know, Elon Musk was going to, going to back off um, the whole, uh, 
seeming you know focus he has consistently on the short sellers in Tesla that's not going anywhere and you just see you know this this the, the article you just pointed out those comments you just pointed to and that just shows a ratcheting up of this and, and it obviously is something that he feels very strongly about so who knows what you know what the next tweet will bring right well, exactly. And at the same time, we have another story. Um, our team catching up with uh, Saudi Prince, Prince um, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And he's, they recently, I guess, bought a big chunk of Tesla, but uh, apparently he doesn't seem to be running out to get one of their cars. Right. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. Um, from a securities concern, though, do we need to be worried about future action or not yet? Just quickly. I mean, it's it's really it's really hard to know. I mean, it's 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 one of these things that there's nothing in the agreement, you know, to the letter that says you can't go ahead and and tweet what he did yesterday. But it, yeah. a lot of the stuff is, you know, an interpretation. So, yeah. um, you know, the agency doesn't like to, I'm sure, have <laughs> have this tweet five right. days after settling. Great stuff, Ben Bain, financial regulations reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our DC bureau. Digging indeed, and one thing we dig, Carol Matthews, see what yes. I did there, is talking to Josh Green. He's national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio down in Washington, D.C. A lot of action down there today. Uh, huge, great story in this week's edition of Bloomberg Business Week, available now. And I'll just read you the headline. A former Obama operative built a new anti-GOP attack machine. That says a lot. But Josh Green is going to tell us more because he got inside uh, that machine. Josh, great to be with you as always. So tell us what is going on as we are 30 or so days out from the midterms. Well, the, the, the piece I did in Business Week basically takes a look at a dark money oppo group, a Democratic oppo group. Um, op- opposition research is, is the, the pretty way in Washington of saying digging for dirt and, and, and smearing your opponent. And uh, it happens, you know, both parties, both sides. Uh, what's so interesting about this is the guy I profiled, a guy named John Burton, was a former uh, Obama campaign opposition researcher in 2008, went on to become a J.P. Morgan banker, uh, which he was until 2016, and then quit after Donald Trump's election to kind of go out and, and, and fight on behalf of Democrats. And, uh, you know, what we've seen since Trump's election is this, this upswell of, of what's come to be known as the resistance. You know, a lot of people angry about Trump who are marching and volunteering and door knocking. Burton's innovation, which I describe in this piece, is he decided that he could take thousands of these resistance volunteers and organize them uh, into a kind of dirt digging operation that has been going on now for the better part of a year, uh, looking into the the records and the backgrounds of vulnerable uh, incumbent Republicans in the House and the Senate and state houses, uh, and now with the midterms looming about four weeks away, begin to deploy this stuff as a way of hurting their support uh, and trying to get Democrats elected. You know, I tweeted out this story um, once it hit the Bloomberg terminal, um, Josh, and someone responded to me, politics, it's, it's a dirty, filthy game. I mean, this goes on on both sides, but this, what's going on currently with this kind of newfound resistance is kind of amped up on steroids, it sounds like. Yeah, it is. I mean, what's so interesting, I mean, you know, opposition research has probably gone on since the Roman Senate, right? I mean, if there's right. somebody you don't like, you yeah. go and find some bad stuff about him, you air it you air it to the public, and you heard his support to kind of get your guy in I think there. Shakespeare so, documented some of that, right? I think, I, I, in fact, he did. Uh, 
good, good, good literary reference there. Now I feel dumb. Uh, what 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 Burton's innovation is though is like up until maybe a year or so ago, opposition research was the province of professionals. The most famous oppo researcher out there today, of course, is Christopher Steele, the ex MI6 spy who produced the, the the infamous Steele dossier, kind of examining Trump's connections to Russia, which have become such a such an issue in our politics. Um, but it's really expensive for campaigns to hire people like that. And so Burton essentially took like what TaskRabbit does, you know, when it comes to like vacuuming or washing your car and decided, you know, I'm going to take that model and I'm going to incorporate that into politics and see if I can get uh, you know, amateurs, you know, people who are actual professionals, lawyers and doctors and teachers and researchers. I've got an insurance representative I talked to with these who in their spare time are willing to go out and basically do dirt digging and investigations. And that can entail everything from going to the courthouse to kind of pull someone's arrest records to, you know, scanning old Instagram and Twitter feeds to see if they've said anything, you know, inflammatory or outrageous that could be weaponized against them. And so he's built this machine um, that 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 is 16,000 people strong that's filtering all this stuff up. And now he's deploying it both, uh, slipping it to reporters and in, in, in local races where these, these things are happening. Um, you know, online ad campaigns, stuff like that. And even um, what, what kind of amused me most was there were, there were some candidates who were actually too lazy to buy their own domain names. Well, Burton and his group snapped them up and have turned their websites into these, uh, you know, damning character attacks of, you know, candidate so-and-so and all the perfidious stuff that he, he or she has done, you know. Any any weapon at hand to you know impugn them ahead of November six and try and knock down their support so that Democrats can get elected. So, pull the camera back a little bit for us, Josh. I mean, we look to you for all things Washington, especially the political zeitgeist. What is this story, or or what does this tell us about sort of the state of the world, or certainly? electoral politics in the United States as we are indeed a month out, I think almost exactly from the midterm elections. It, it is yet another manifestation, I think, of the democratic energy and passion to get out there and try and unelect Republicans. Now, certainly there are Republicans and conservatives you know, organizing, trying to do the same thing around, for instance, uh, Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination. But the level of Democratic activism pretty much from the day after Trump's election has been unprecedented. And what Burton has done you know, in this piece essentially is to harness 16,000 of these resistance volunteers uh, with the idea of, of, of trying to make this blue wave that a lot of people expect to hit on November 6th, to just try and make that wave a little bit bigger. Hey, listen, just got about 50 seconds left, 40 seconds left here. Brett Kavanaugh, what are you hearing? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's on a knife's edge right now. Uh, Susan Collins seems to be the pivotal senator, the main senator, Republican, uh, has said that she will come out at 3 p.m. and announce her decision. The, sig- the signal she seems to be sending uh, would indicate that in the end she'll support Kavanaugh and he'll get confirmed. But uh, you know, I wouldn't count on it. I'd wait for her to break the news. Uh, it's been a crazy three weeks in Washington surrounding this nomination, and it wouldn't shock me if there was more craziness to come. 
we're gonna, we've just stolen some time to ask you one more question, Josh. It, how does this play into the midterms? You think you you talked about the Democratic energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there seem to be at least reports or some polling that indicates that the whole Kavanaugh drama, for lack of a better term, may have galvanized some Republicans. Are you seeing that play through? How do you? What, do you what, make what, I, what I'm hearing from strategists in both parties is number one, this is absolutely energized uh, Democratic voters. If mm-hmm. you go to my Twitter feed, I just tweeted out some charts from a Democratic tech group that organizes volunteers, showing huge spikes in Democratic activism after Ford went went public with her or claim of having been sexually assaulted. If you talk to Republicans right now, their voters are hyper-energized around Kavanaugh. The big question is, however, if he's confirmed, as I think a lot of people expect this weekend, does that Republican energy dissipate in the month between now and November 6th? Doesn't seem very likely that the Democratic energy will, uh, but of course we won't know until election night. Josh Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, author of a great piece in this week's Bloomberg Business Week. It is available on the terminal now. We also have a longer interview with Josh on our weekend show, our weekend Bloomberg Business Week show, heard on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television. And Josh, of course, we can't let you go without mentioning author of Devil's Bargain, yeah. uh, really one of the definitive works about uh, current politics. So always good to catch up with him. Well, the interesting guys made way into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That's Jim Douglas. He's president and CEO of Wind River. You get it, Carol? That was the red, like the wind. I thing. got it. Yeah, I just got that. I just thanks. got that. Thanks for doing that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> A little it. mansplaining I, there. <laughs> <laughs> I was only saying because I just figured it out. You were, I knew you'd be ahead of me. Uh, so Wind River, based out in Alameda, California, Oakland area, uh, so, Jim, tell us what you are up to. We hear about IoT all the time, Internet of Things. You've got the industrial, the IIoT on your mind. Yeah, absolutely. We're the little company you never heard of. You know, we're in 2 billion compute devices out there on this planet and on Mars um, that are powering a lot of really advanced technologies in areas that just can't fail. And so industrial is one of our primary markets. And IoT, um, when it first emerged, a lot of it was consumer-oriented. So, you know, people got really enamored with things like Fitbits and I can run and I can share that with my social group. But from an economic standpoint, kind of the big win is going to be in the world of the industrial domain where incremental improvements in areas like manufacturing through digital transformation are just going to be huge. How did you is- notice he just slipped Mars right in there? He's I like, did. I, factories I, I read the back. It's like, see- oh, also Mars. Did well- you see the Martian? Come on. We were famous for that Martian. <laughs> well, we're in the book. Well, let, let's talk about that because you guys were involved with the project with the NASA Mars rover Curiosity. What specifically, what, what was it? Let's whittle it down so people understand exactly the kind of things you're doing. Absolutely. So the operating system that that machine runs on, it's got to be like all real-time operating system because it just can't fail and it's high performance, and so it runs our operating system. Like I said, we're that little company you never heard of that's in equipment like that. How much of this, though, is already happening in manufacturing, and how much more is yet to scale up and be done? There's a ton left to do. So if you look at areas like manufacturing, medical, and the like, they were specifically built because of safety reasons to be separated from things like enterprise networks and the cloud. Um, The next wave is by connecting them, you can now extract data really conveniently off the edge, start to create big pools of data 
be able to analyze it and start to do things like predictive maintenance that can extend the life of equipment and manufacturing floors. That's kind of phase one. Um, the big win is phase two, which is really kind of that progression from automation to autonomy. So you guys have probably covered artificial intelligence a lot, and most of that's occurring in the cloud today. Yeah. Ultimately, you want to push that down to, they call the edge equipment, like on the factory floor, in cars, in medical imaging, where it can be very intelligent at that point. And so we're helping usher in that. Um, and that's going to have tremendous transformational value uh, in terms of the effectiveness of the industrial domain and consequently well, the economics. Well, give us an example of how it might change something. Sure. So think about things like robots. You know, when robots came into vogue, they were all about cutting the cost of labor. You know, welders are expensive on a car manufacturing line, so I can do that task with a machine. Great. Kind of the next phase is we're moving to things like collaborative robots. You know, you've seen like Amazon using these collaborative robots that'll pick things off shelves and they'll work with people. Phase three is going to be where those robots are fairly autonomous. They can do tasks where they don't have to intervene with people to do them. They'll have people provide them with guidance on the outcomes they want, but they can actually learn on their own and continuously improve at how they do the task. And that's the big pony. That's what we're looking at in the next decade with artificial intelligence getting down into this equipment that you find on factory floors you find in imaging equipment in hospitals you find in cars right it's going to continuously improve so it's not extending how well things work today like you're finding with phase one it's really helping them operationally improve every day so very exciting people look at artificial intelligence and they get very excited. Carol and I have covered this a lot in Blue Terrified Hope all week, at once. Yeah. But terrifying. Yeah. You, you went right there. So, you know, why should I not be scared? Well, I, I think I just spoke about this to customers on Tuesday. There's kind of three dimensions to get terrified on. The first is you're going to take away jobs. You know, you look back historically, every phase of industrial revolution absolutely displaced labor. Always happens. And what happened is we retrained labor to operate in kind of the new domain. And that is going to happen again, and we're going to retrain labor to work in a world where equipment is more autonomous. So that's terrifying scenario one. Right. Terrifying scenario number two is weaponization. Um, Oh, my God. These things are going to be The robots have turned against me. Absolutely. And then three, and this is Elon Musk has a great quote about, you know, if the machine is optimized to do something and then it happens to interfere with humans, it doesn't care. You know, no harm, no foul. It's going to do its best. Um, so I think it's a new ethic question for yeah. people as they look to the future around AI is how do you monitor that? Do you have to regulate it? Um, and then technically, how do you keep a leash on it is the big thing. I, I happen to be very bullish. I, I think it's, as I said, the thing that's going to be transformational. Most of the things we're talking about with the Internet of Things now are incrementalism. Mm-hmm. This is the true transformation. Mm-hmm. And we're going to figure it out. How do you keep it secure? We say that in a week where we had a huge story about uh, Chinese motherboards. Oh, yeah. Essentially, are manufacturing. Slipping in devices on the yeah. motherboards. Tell me. we got about 30 seconds. Yeah, and that's that's why equipment has never been connected to enterprise networks because that's the big fear. If it's safety-based equipment, someone's going to hack in. Yeah. Um, there's no great answer, and you could never keep all threats out. It's two things. It's thinking about security throughout the whole system, and it's how fast you can react when you have a problem. And there's both 
procedures. But, does, but does it make you start to think the technology supply chain and where things are being manufactured? Just 10 seconds. It, it does, and that's why things like blockchain and ledger-based design activities are so in vogue right now yeah. because it lets you keep a handle on that. Cool stuff. Jim Douglas, thank Absol- you so much. Really appreciate it. Come back. President and CEO at Wind River, based in Alameda, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Friday. This is Bloomberg. All right, as we wrap up this busy, busy week, really nice conversation with a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, Jake Casson is co-founder of Movement, but that's spelled M-V-M-T. Uh, he is based in Los Angeles. He joins us on the phone from there. It's a luxury watch company. It's being bought by Movado, of all places. That's a pretty good exit. Jake, thanks so much for being with Carol and myself. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the watch business, we're fascinated by this. We have a colleague uh, at Bloomberg Business Week <laughs> yes. named Chris Rouser. He is a watch guy of the highest degree. So he is uh, sort of in our in the back of our mind, sort of sitting on our shoulders here. Uh, as we look at your company, what an amazing success story. You really leverage social media. But the one thing I want to understand from you is millennials, they're into watches. That's sort of a surprise to me. Yeah, I think for us, you know, we've always focused on the fashion element of the watch. We still use, you know, extremely high quality materials. So really, you know, the best value um, for the best price, but focusing more so on, you know, what the brand represents and the aesthetic of the watch. We really and then also focusing on, you know, more digital channels. So, you know, we do we do spend money on, you know, the Facebooks and we have a large following on uh, the social networks. We have about almost 5 million followers now um, in aggregate, but also spending, you know, digital money on, on um, or, or acquisition money on uh, on TV as well. So just hitting all the channels that millennials are kind of engaging with and, and building that out. But again, focusing on the fashion element of the watch more so than anything else. Hey, Jack, Jake, I got to ask you, and I said this to my producer, uh-huh. our producer, Paul Brand, I said, so wait a minute, these guys start this company, it's been around about five years, and you're kind of upending the fashionable watch industry, like figuring out a different way to do it. And then you kind of sell out to an established brand. I'm just curious, like what your thinking was, because it sounded like you guys were having some fun doing it differently. And here you now $71 million in sales. Yeah. Nothing and, to sneeze at. And under an umbrella where they own a bunch of different watch names. Yeah, so for us, the the idea was, you know, we had talked to Movado and had a relationship with them and, and realized as we started talking to them that, you know, they fully believed in, in us as a brand from our product to team. So, you know, we're still going to operate in the same way. Um, we're going to do this exact same things. But, you know, they have infrastructure and are able to help us um, in the offline world and in wholesale world. Um, and that, that was just stuff that would have been extremely capital intensive and would have taken much longer for us to get there. So the great thing is, is, is there, you know, and the, the founder uh, or the CEO of, of Movado is very much a, a brand and product guy. So he understands the importance of keeping the, the movement DNA the same. So it's really more of a, a complementary, you know, their, their strengths have kind of been our weaknesses. And uh, rather than investing in that infrastructure on our own, they've already built that out. So it really, you know, great, great synergies. So I want to go back to the earliest days, Jake, if we can. You chose to go the the crowdfunding route, which I feel like, you know, a lot of people say that they can do it or they they try to do it. Why do you think it it caught fire for you? Was it timing? Was it the product? What what did you learn from that experience? Yeah, I think it was certainly a handful of things. We were one of the first watch 
uh, brands to be crowdfunded. And uh, it was in a time where crowdfunding was still relatively new. So I think timing definitely had a, a, a big piece of it. Um, it was also uh, around the same time where, you know, Instagram was just taking off. Snapchat was just kind of taking off. So just, you know, realizing that there was a different way to connect with consumers rather than just the, whole, the traditional wholesale model and being the first to get there. And then also, again, I think, you know, the brand and the product obviously have to resonate and from a price, from an aesthetic, from the brand perspective. So it was a combination of really all those components uh, coming to place at the same time. You know, it's funny, too. I think about the stories that were written over the last few years of saying, ah, millennials are never going to wear a watch. And just going to look at their phones. <laughs> exactly. And yet that's exactly the market you're playing to. Yeah, again, it's a fashion accessory. Uh, we have sunglasses now. We have jewelry as well. So we really are looking to be more than just watches, but it's even the watches themselves is, is an accessory. It helps people express themselves. Um, and for the last decade, people have been looking at their phones, yet people are still wearing watches. Uh, even, you know, the luxury watches of the world like Rolexes, people wear them, but they're still telling time on their phone uh, more often than not. Great stuff. Jake Kasson, co-founder, MVMT Movement is how it's pronounced. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.